Okay. <clears throat> and I will share my screen. Um, okay, let's see. All right. Can you see it, Maggie? Yes. Okay, good. <clears throat> so for tonight, um, I wanted to, to create a recording about two-eyed seeing and a kind of um, grounding of, of work that we've done in the last three courses. <clears throat> just to kind of have that to bring everyone up to snuff, up to date. And um, this is how to reach me and my email, fax, phone number, et cetera, mailing, snail mail. And I also wanna thank Albert Marshall for originating the idea of two-eyed seeing and acknowledge the original people of this land, the Wabanaki, the people of the Don, and to thank anyone who is, is or will join me. So, um, so we're going to talk about two-eyed seeing, but we're going, I'm going to focus it to some degree on mental health because that's the area in which I work. And we know that indigenous people have been concerned with <clears throat> emotional well-being for thousands of years, but that today's dominant paradigm, which is biomedical psychiatry, dismisses indigenous wisdom of mental health as unscientific and lacking in evidence. And we believe that indigenous psychology has something to offer the modern world. So two-eyed seeing is emerging as a way to integrate indigenous knowledge with other knowledge systems. And it's not just for Aboriginal or indigenous people. It applies equally well to any marginalized population. People who hear voices, immigrants, homeless people, <clears throat> all the like. So the word in Mi'kmaq is Eptuaptamank, and Albert Marshall is a Mi'kmaq elder who created this concept in the fall of 2004. And it became a guiding principle for Cape Breton University for a number of years. So his idea was to create a terminology that would help us to appreciate the wisdom of the indigenous world and other epistemologies to, oops, I don't wanna go, let me go back. Yeah. To complement the contemporary scientific approach. And Albert would say, and I, I believe this too, that we need indigenous wisdom for the survival of humanity. 
that the Eurocentric vision <clears throat> of, of sort of domination of nature isn't really turning out so well. And we need uh, to be more cooperative with nature. So two-eyed seeing or Eptawapta monk asks that we bring together our different ways of knowing to motivate people to leave the world a better place and not compromise the opportunities for our youth. Now there's another important concept, Netukalimk, which is the concept of interdependence and interconnection. And it means that humans are interdependent and interconnected with the natural and the spiritual world. So we have to talk about coexistence, interrelatedness, interconnectedness, and community. And this is, by the way, a picture of Albert. I should go back and let Albert sit on the main frame for just a moment. So two-eyed seeing is about how you should live while on the earth. And it's a guiding principle that covers all aspects of our lives, social, economic, environmental. And the advantage of seeing with more than one eye is that we're always looking for another perspective and a better way to do things. So it's evolving, it's opening opportunities for exploration and further definition. Its goal is to connect the best of indigenous and Western knowledge systems, despite their fundamental differences in values and origins. <clears throat> so indigenous knowledge comes from traditional teachings, empirical observations and relevations, and is conveyed through personal stories holistic perspectives and metaphoric language. Western academic knowledge has largely been rooted in positivist methods that privilege objective, linear, hierarchical, and written evidence. So our goal then is to create an ethical space between indigenous people and that other world. And as Albert and his wife, Mordina, would say, we need tribal consciousness. So we really do need to take the best from our two worlds. And we need to de-emphasize the emphasis of Western science on objectivity and while still maintaining, while still appreciating the value of Western science. However, it is for the benefit of all humans to factor the human element into science and to rediscover our humility as just one species on the planet. <clears throat> so, Indigenous knowledge comes from consensus-driven, systematic observations of how things work. 
and it results in explanations that are useful and appealing. And these explanations don't need to make sense to the dominant paradigm to be to work or to be practical. So indigenous knowledge is the opposite of positivism. Positivism says that there is one cause and science will find it. There is only one explanation and that the best explanation excludes all other explanations of that event. And indigenous knowledge is the opposite of reductionism. Reductionism asserts that all phenomena can be described and predicted by fundamental microstructural theories. So the smaller the level of the explanation, the more true it is. And there's a reason to question reductionism. For instance, knowledge of the neural circuitry involved in depression and the related neurochemicals does not explain why relationship and talking together within that relationship makes people feel better. Nor does knowledge of the brain circuitry involved in meditation explain meditation or the beneficial effects of meditation. So that the smallest level of explanation is not always the best. So what we're talking about is explanatory pluralism in, in European philosophical terms. The idea which Albert Marshall presented in indigenous terms, the idea that explanations can exist at multiple levels and that an explanation on one level need not be compatible or explainable by an explanation on another level. So we choose the explanation that we intend to use based upon its utility and its aesthetics, recognizing that different explanations will work better for different contexts. And we acknowledge that more than one explanation is often required to account for a given phenomenon. And this relates to indigenous philosophy, which says that two things can be both true and both false at the same time. So indigenous philosophy refutes the classical philosophy idea that not A and A can both be true. So indigenous philosophy says that two things can be both true at the same time or both false at the same time. And we need to negotiate the relationship among them. So <clears throat> the reductionist account would say that we must explain mental states um, molecularly. So Francis Crick, who was a reductionist, a famous reductionist, by the way, said that you 
your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. There's nothing more than that. However, um, the anti-reductionist account says that um, we have to understand the mind as more than just its molecular structure, but also by the behavior of the whole mind, as the whole has a different function than its individual parts. So, <clears throat> what does indigenous knowledge tell us about mind and mental health? It tells us that we are forged, we are created through our relationships and that our relationships are managed through stories and that stories give us meaning and purpose. There's, this is a book by Joanne Archibald, published by the University of British Columbia about indigenous story work. And she says that indigenous oral stories nourish knowledge systems and our knowledge systems. And that there are seven principles of indigenous story work. Respect, responsibility, reciprocity, reverence, holism, interrelatedness, and synergy, all of which are great ideas. So we learn to be who we are. We are not born that way. We're born into relationships that determine who we become through the stories that we hear. We absorb those stories and those stories lead us to make certain conclusions, which are called beliefs. So we're co-constructed by all of our relationships in the community in which we find ourselves and all of the stories that arise from those relationships. Now there's a Lakota concept that I love that I think sheds light on this, that the Lakota have the concept of the Nagi. The Nagi is the swarm of all the stories that make and have made and will make us what we are. And they swarm around our body, near or far. And each story contains a spark of the being who told that story. These are all the things that influence us. And story takes place within community. This is a, an example of a community circle. So within the indigenous world, knowledge is carried by elders. They carry knowledge of both the physical and the spiritual worlds. They're educated through the oral tradition. They carry credentials that are recognizable within their society, especially around ethics and community protocols. And everyone knows who is an elder. So elders typically do language camp, 
or other cultural activities to bring others into their unawareness of their teachings. So elders are different from experts. In conventional psychiatry, we have experts that tell everyone what to do. Elders listen. They carry circular knowledge represented commonly in North America by the four directions. So we have the emotional, the direction of the emotional, the mental, the spiritual, and the physical. And cultures place these in different quadrants of the circle, but we're always dealing with these four quadrants. <clears throat> oh, and I wanted to talk a little bit about Vern Harper, who is an amazing elder that I met at the Center for Addictions and Mental Health in Toronto. And sitting with Vern was just an amazing experience because I've never felt so heard or appreciated as I did when I sat with him. And Vern had a practice of going to the, the um, slums of Toronto, the worst parts of Toronto, and just sitting down and listening to people. And he listened without judgment or interpretation. He just listened. And that, as a, according to Jacques Lacan, the French psychoanalyst, is the greatest gift we can give people. And uh, I want to mention a couple other elders that I have known. John Charles and Melvin Gray Fox. John Charles was from um, Sturgeon Lake First Nation um, in Saskatchewan, which is a little bit northwest of Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. <coughs> and John Charles was an interesting fellow because he had been trained as an Episcopal, or as they say in Canada, Anglican priest. And when he was 60 years old, he was diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor and given a prognosis of perhaps one month to live. And he realized that his, his Christian Anglican approach had not worked. And acquaintances told him to visit a Cree healer, which is his tradition, his, his origins, he was Cree. And he did, and he worked with her, and his tumor disappeared, which is pretty amazing for those of us who work in Western medicine or conventional medicine, I should say. But that put John in a quandary because he'd spent his life being Christian, and now it was Cree traditions that healed him. And he was quite distressed. And he had a dream. He dreamed of 
Christ on the cross surrounded by four elders in each of the directions, smoking their sacred pipes. And at that moment, when he woke up, he realized that it was all one, that there was no need to differentiate and that he could be both. He could be Cree and Christian at the same time because the spirits were that permissive. And so he began to um, practice his Cree spirituality and healing in a, in a kind of interestingly, somewhat slightly Christian way. And it was lovely. And I would take people to see him on Sunday morning when he had his clinic in his house with teenagers running all over the place and, and people coming into the front room to wait to see him for a doctoring to be taken into one of the bedrooms and, and treated by him. And when everyone had been seen, we would do a purification ceremony. And when that was over, we would eat sturgeon from Sturgeon Lake. So um, that was John Charles practicing his own blend of two I'd seen, integrating Cree spirituality and his Anglican training, his Anglican religion. And um, Melvin Gray Fox was an elder that I knew from North Dakota. And he also integrated practice two-eyed seeing. And he, so here's my story about Melvin. And this is a story that is in my book, Coyote Healing. Melvin, um, Melvin's daughter married a, a Canadian Air Force, Canadian uh, airman from British Columbia. They met at the Air Force base in Grand Forks, North Dakota, which was not too far from where Melvin lived. And in this young man's community, uh, three young people had committed suicide together and the community was in deep distress. And so they asked Melvin to come do a ceremony for the community. And Melvin did what's called a Uweepi ceremony. And that translates as they tie him up. It was a ceremony brought back to the people by horn chips in the 1860s during a vision on Bear Butte. And it was supposed to cure white people disease. And at any rate, it's a it's still a very, it is a very powerful ceremony. So they tie up the leader and place him or her in a on a blanket in the center of the room, surrounded by tobacco ties, pieces of cloth in which tobacco is placed and tied on a string, 405 of them usually. And the person is well tied, fingers, <laughs> arms, body, etc. And the ceremony is done in complete darkness. And during the ceremony, the spirits untie the leader 
who then doctors the people. And so Melvin was brought there to do the ceremony. And he sent us, his helpers, I was one of his roadies, I carried around his stuff. And, you know, it, it, it's quite a bit of work to make a space impenetrable to light, which is what we did. <clears throat> and we went to the general store, which was in the only center of town. And we heard somebody shooting off a shotgun and came outside. And here was a guy in camouflage uniform shooting off a shotgun and screaming, I want to be an Indian. I want to be an Indian, which seemed pretty crazy. And needless to say, we were a bit frightened. But Melvin marched right out to him and said, if you want to be an Indian, give me that there shotgun, which the guy did. And I don't know whatever happened to the shotgun. But Melvin yelled to us to bring him some tobacco. And we did. And we put the tobacco in the guy's hand and helped him to offer it to Melvin. And Melvin said, all right, then do whatever I tell you and you can be an Indian. And so um, it was cold, it was winter, it was Northern British Columbia. Melvin told him to get in the back of the pickup truck. And he told me to get in the back with him because I was the damn psychiatrist, which I did. And um, he was indeed crazy. And eventually we got to the ceremony and Melvin gave him a drum and said, you know, keep up with my boys, which he did to his credit. He drummed really well in time. And Melvin took him home. There was, there was a woman back in Melvin's community whose husband had just died and she had no relatives anywhere nearby to take care of her. And she needed help. And Melvin said, come with me, help this woman out and I'll, I'll teach you how to be an Indian. And the guy did that. Now, this was the day before you needed passports to come in, to go between Canada and the US. And we used to keep a collection of driver's licenses to use for these occasions. And we found one that looked kind of like him. And no one really looked that closely in those days. So we got him across the border. And he lived with Melvin for four years before I ran into him again. And I didn't recognize him, but he recognized me and he said, hey, remember me? And I said, yeah, sure. And he said, yeah, I'm that guy who wanted to be an Indian. I said, oh, right, right. And he said, he said, according to Melvin, I'm an Indian now because I, I know the language. I speak the language. I, I know the songs. I know how to help out on all the ceremonies. And Melvin says, if I work at it, I can become a drug and alcohol counselor now. So he sure was different and sure was better. And so that was two-eyed seeing. Melvin saw something 
in him that none of us could see. We saw with one eye, which was that he was crazy and dangerous potentially with a shotgun. And Melvin saw with another eye that he could, he could, he could have healing. He could find healing. And Melvin implemented him, implemented it. So, um, so looking at um, self as a community of voices and relationships, we can talk about how the same techniques that we use in community for communication, storytelling and listening are those we use in the community of our mind. So as outside, so inside. And um, just a moment, I'm just gonna pause for a moment here. Um, I can go. No, I thought it was quiet. So the social brain hypothesis says that our our brains function on the inside like the world functions on the outside. So on the inside, we have these beings, internalized beings, and relationships among these beings. And we have a community of beings which coalesce to create us. And and this is the community that makes us who we are. And um, we are spirit beings come to walk in a physical world. And this is a, a indigenous North American concept, but also an Indian Hindu concept. So the same idea is found in the Bhagavad Gita in which the goddess describes the difficulty of being in physical reality, that her thoughts are slowed by having to think them through a brain, that her movement is slowed by having to use feet, that um, it's just so much more difficult to be physical than to be spiritual. And so the Lakota idea is that we, we can pick a life. We sit in spirit world and we pick a life into which to enter. And sometimes it seems a lot easier in spirit world than it seems in ordinary world. Sometimes we bite off more than we can chew. And when we get here, we're like, what was I thinking? How could I have chosen this? And, and we, we are wounded. We experience trauma. And there's a, a tradition in Japan in which broken pottery is 
mended with gold. So healing is the mending of our wounds with gold. So, you can let So, um, so mental illness in this idea results from having and performing deficient stories or from not having stories with which to make sense of the world and operate in it effectively. So mental illness is not a noun, it's a verb. For instance, depression is not a thing, but a process. It's not an object, it's a river. It's a story, stories are like rivers. They come from somewhere, they flow, and they go somewhere. So mental, so-called mental illness are verbs and not nouns. And therefore, we're not what we're labeled, but we're participating in a flow, in a process in which we are moving toward somewhere that we may or may not want to go. So we construct stories to introduce order into the chaos of experience. And we construct stories to change the direction of where we're going, to change the direction to which the river flows. And culture itself is a collection of stories. So culture is humanly constructed and not a natural product. It, it emerges from social interactions and not from individual creations. And we co-create stories for each other to share. Ceremony then is the group enactment of a shared story. And this is one of my favorite authors, <clears throat> Leslie Silko, from her book, Ceremony. She said, I will tell you something about stories. They aren't just for entertainment. Don't be fooled. They are all we have, you see. All we have to fight off illness and death. You don't have anything if you don't have the stories. So stories are everything. And, and why has conventional treatment failed to address the needs of indigenous people? Well, partly because it, it fails to acknowledge the stories and it also fails to acknowledge traditional spiritual and healing methods that continue to persist in many indigenous communities. So we know that strong evidence exists for the role of strengthening cultural identity, community integration, and political empowerment within indigenous communities to enhance mental health and improve substance use disorders. 
there's a researcher at the University of Victoria in British Columbia, Christopher Lalonde, who found that among indigenous communities in British Columbia with intact language, meaning most people are fluent, there are 55 times less suicide attempts than occur in the general population of all of British Columbia. <clears throat> However, indigenous communities who have lost their language have 50 times more suicide attempts than the general population of British Columbia. So language is crucial for survival and culture. So what are some of the indigenous explanations then for mental illness, for emotional suffering? One is inherited trauma, intergenerational trauma. The trauma of the parents is passed to the children. And we now know that to be in epigenetics in scientific terms. Thank you, my phone for a second. I actually, my elbow's locked, so I can't. <laughs> no, you want help? I, I got it, but I didn't. Did you get it? You guys? Yep, because it's locked too. So. Shit. Uh, Lewis. There we go. Yeah. If you want to unmute, if you want to comment, please feel free. Anyone can, anyone is invited to comment at any time. <clears throat> so, oops, going back. So anyway, um, So we have we have the act of intergenerational trauma, which includes residential schools on the part of parents, grandparents, and the like. We also have direct trauma, people who experience trauma as children. We have hungry ghosts, which are the spirits, for instance, of methamphetamine, heroin cocaine, um, things like that. We have the notion of the canary in the societal mind shaft, that when society is out of balance, that some people in the community take it on themselves to express that imbalance and do it for the rest of us. So therefore, we should honor them and thank them for taking on the suffering for all of us. We have deficient stories for life, which translate as low, low levels of skills for emotional regulation, for behavior. We have people who are caught in impossible situations which have been called double binds, where, where you can't win no matter what you choose. We have 
people who um, push themselves towards spiritual awakening without proper guidance or protection or instruction and open themselves up too fast, too soon, too much and, and fragment. So, um, and finally we have the power threat meaning framework, which is very important, which is the idea that um, we find ourselves in threatening situations with others who have power over us and threaten us and there's nothing we can do about it. And that's an impossible situation. So from indigenous knowledge, what would we say would constitute healing? So community, radical acceptance, belonging, finding a sense of belonging, um, being in good relationship, feeling dignity and respect, <clears throat> participating in ceremony, prayer, spirituality, cultivating the seven virtues, um, doing, having body therapies, touch therapies, exercise, dance, drumming, music, singing, being a part of nature, eating well, taking plant medicines, being immersed in better stories, telling our own stories, hearing stories, finding a way to save face, hearing the traditional stories, visualizing, dreaming, creating an intent to be well, and feeling protected by those around us. So where is science intersecting indigenous knowledge? Well, we have the idea of, of speaker-listener neurocoupling, which is this, which is an amazing body of research that shows that when I listen to a story that you tell me, the same parts of the brain, of my brain, light up as are lit up in your brain in the telling of the story, which is a tribute to interconnectedness. We have the audience effect, which says that when we experience an event together with others, it has a much more powerful impact upon us than if we experience it alone. We have an understanding of the power of being in community. The social brain hypothesis tells us that What's outside of us is inside of us. <clears throat> Epigenetics tells us that what happened to our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, at least seven generations removed, is passed to us through the shape of our genetic code. So experience shapes the genetic code. It doesn't change the sequence of the genetic code, but it changes the shape through methylation, which is putting a carbon with three hydrogens, 
onto the genetic code or through acetylation, which is putting a carbon with a couple oxygens and a hydrogen onto the, onto the histones, the molecules that <coughs> maintain the structure of the genetic code. And when you change the structure, you change the expression. When you change the structure, you turn genes on or off. And that can have a powerful impact on health and disease and well-being. And finally, we recognize the incredible power of listening to the story. So um, I just wanted to mention this study on speaker-listener neurocoupling from 2010, that they recorded in an fMRI the brain activity of a speaker telling an unrehearsed real-life story, and then of a listener hearing a recording of that story. And so the interaction between the two brains revealed widespread neural coupling between telling and listening. So A shows areas in which coupling occurs and B shows the overlap between areas. So we talked about the social brain, but the important idea is that the social environment changes our brain structure and function far more than we previously imagined. And this is why medication wears off over time, because if you don't change the social environment, the brain adapts and now it's adapted with medication. I wanted to talk about some two-eyed seeing projects that are happening around the globe. And there's one in Eskasoni First Nation, which is where Albert Marshall originates in near Sydney, Nova Scotia. And it's a project aimed at improving youth mental health care. Access, open minds is called. And a um, number of people wrote a paper about it. And we have the reference here. Um, and um, so the idea was to integrate indigenous practice with conventional practice. And um, within a Mi'kmaq community. So, of course, since Albert Marshall was there, uh, it's not too strange to think that they would be invested in two-eyed seeing. And their goal was uh, to provide rapid access to care through barrier-free availability, um, through a central intake and referral center, and ease of contact through social media and other modalities. And in that contact, youth were given the choice between standard Western mental health services or indigenous methods of improving well-being 
or a combination of the two. So here's another study in which two-eyed seeing was used to review studies. And so they created an ad hoc review group with elders and community members to evaluate research. And um, synthesize evidence from multiple sources. So, um, so storytelling has power when the people who hear the story can emotionally engage with the story. And when the story resonates with the core concepts of the culture in which the people are embedded, including their family and their daily lived experiences. So across all human cultures, storytelling and story listening is a core part of community and family life. And really because of that, it works everywhere. So if we want to talk about developing storytelling interventions, we begin with groups, we begin with gathering data to help us understand what interventions make sense to the, the people with whom we're working. And we identify people who can serve as storytelling stars, who can tell stories about their own healing, recovery, improvement. And, and then we develop guides for recording these stars so that they can share their stories with others. So um, when we see with two eyes, how do we restore balance and harmony? How do we move toward health? So we need to be more relational and less procedural. procedural. That means that I value my relationship with you more than I value what I can do to you. And so first and foremost comes building a relationship. Secondly, um, more stories, less diagnoses. So diagnoses are good for billing, but little else. And what we really need are fewer nouns and more verbs. We need to know the, the flow, the flow that's gotten you from where you began to where you are today and to where you might be tomorrow. And we need to work with that story to change where you might be tomorrow to somewhere more desirable for you. So what we label you is less important than where you came from, how you got here and where you're heading. So we need to be more bottom-up and less top-down. And what that means is finding the wisdom in locality and not in delocality. In other words, finding the wisdom for healing in the lives and stories of the people where we are and not in abstract universal concepts that we push down from on high. And 
we need to acknowledge suffering and bear witness more than we need to treat symptoms and conditions. So bearing witness to the humanity of people. We need to, to do more qualitative research where we find out what things mean to people. Community-based participatory action research in which people in communities decide their own problems and figure out how to explore fixing them rather than hierarchical imposition of solutions by experts. And um, we need to understand that conventional science is highly political and that we can be critical of it. And one of those criticisms is called the Lake Wobegon effect. And we, we may or may not have time to go into that. So, um, so relational versus procedural. This is a story about a, a person with whom I interacted in the clinic in which I had been working. And she had been diagnosed with migraines and depression. And the, the physicians in the clinic had exhausted the, the number of medications that they could give her to treat her migraines and her depression. And so we did a life story interview which we've modified from the Northwestern University Life Story Interview. We're calling it the main Life Story Interview. You can contact me if you want a copy. But during the interview, we, we and she spontaneously realized that there was a tremendous conflict between the obligations of motherhood for her and her desire for a career. And this realization led to a series of conversations, which were very different from what had been happening beforehand, which was a series of prescriptions of medications. And what the medication, what the prescription of medications failed to do was to address relation or meaning. So um, over time, um, she stopped having migraines and being depressed and was able to negotiate um, re-entry into career while still being a mother. So here's another example. This is, this is a client diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, treated with antipsychotics and anti-epileptic medications in multiple hospitalizations. And the conventional approach was just to keep finding new medications. So uh, the descriptive approach was to get her story. So, and in that story was embedded childhood sexual abuse, um, acknowledging her fear of sleeping indoors because at that time 
when we first encountered her, she only slept in her car so she could run at a moment's notice. And we began to work with this story to move toward healing. So this work is collaborative. It's dialogical. It's creating a zone of proximate development in the sense of Vygotsky so that she can embed her experience into a narrative template. And eventually she created a kind of graphic novel of her life. And in ceremony, because we believe that we can be blatantly spiritual in our activity, um, we honored her sacrifice for taking on the abuse and protecting her siblings and her courage at coming into this life, even at all. <clears throat> so over time, she became able to sleep indoors and eventually transcended her suffering to become um, a fully functional human being with a relationship and goals and happiness. So another example, uh, a 48 year old Lakota woman with many hospitalizations and suicide attempts. The top down approach was for therapists to tell her what to do and to prescribe every possible combination of medications. So I took the bottom up approach and I said, I don't know what you should do. Um, you know more about you than I know about you. What do you wanna do? And to attempt to provide the deep listening and to have faith that she could heal and the intention that we would make it so. And eventually incorporating art and ceremony into our work together. So do we follow a top-down protocol, a hierarchically driven set of instructions, or do we work within the story of the person? So one of my favorite stories about this is Ibn Sena and the prince who thought he was a cop. So um, Ibn Sena was a Persian physician of approximately the 10th century, who was considered the expert on medicine for most of the world for at least 900 years. And Ibn Sena was called to consult on a prince who thought he was a cow. And the prince was demanding to be killed and fed to his people who were starving. Needless to say, the, the Sultan was not happy with this proposition and therefore Ibn Sena was called. And so Ibn Sena came and I imagined he listened to the story of the prince and he said to the prince, well, you may be a cow, but you're a mighty scrawny looking cow. If you wanna be fed to the people, we better fatten you up. To which the 
prince immediately agree. This is working within the story. And so um, Ibn Sina commenced to visit the prince frequently and to bring him food and other medicaments to fatten him up. And eventually, we're told, the prince had pity on Ibn Sina and said to him, hey, guess what? I'm not a cow. And I, I imagine Ibn Sina saying something like, really? Who knew? And the prince comforting Ibn Sina on his realization that the prince was not a cow. So according to the records from antiquity, this is more or less what happened. Now, you all perhaps know the Hamong example from um, Merced, California, in which the Hamong people were brought from Vietnam to California. And, um, well, they didn't know how to relate to conventional medicine. And they had this idea that when a person had a seizure, it was the spirits knocking them over. And, and they didn't work well with conventional doctors until a cross-cultural dialogue was created. And a book came out of it. I think it, the name of it is, if you catch me, catch me, if you catch me, I will fall down or something like that. And um, so um, here's an example before we stop of people using two-eyed seeings in indigenous harm reduction programs. This is from our colleague, Teresa Marsh in Northeastern Ontario. And um, she worked with elders to come up with a two-eyed seeing approach to harm reduction. And you can see that you begin, this is the metaphor that the elders wanted to use. And it's, um, typical for the colors are typical for the northeastern part of the United States and Canada. Um, we begin in the east. They say that souls enter through the east. And the east is the place of beginnings, sunrise, dawn, childhood, newborns, times of change, new ideas, new lights. And we move around to the South. And we do that through grandfather's teachings, through sacred items, through language. And in the South, we encounter young people, adolescents and young adults and um, in Mi'kmaq or in um, the Algonquin cultures of Northeastern Ontario, they say it's the, the South is the direction of the fire, that we rise from the embers, that transformation takes place, that um, 
that these are wonderful things and, and are associated with high noon, with summer, um, with um, things like that. Then we move on to the West, which is adulthood, sunset, twilight. Um, it's, it's associated with finishing things, preparing things, family and responsibility. And then we move to the North, which is associated with old age, purity, wisdom, healing, dream time, growing and looking deeper. And um, this is the medicine circle of Northeastern Ontario. And you can see how in the center are Aboriginal peoples, elders, community, and teachers. And in the next layer of, this, of the circle are the areas of research that correspond. Like for the East, the advisory group, training of facilitators to the South, um, groups themselves telling people how to conduct research or clinical activities, to the West sharing circles, and to the North conclusions. So it's a beautiful model that Teresa March used in Northeastern Ontario. And um, the outer circle of that model embraces traditional healing practices and their interaction with the conventional work that was being brought, which was a program called Seeking Safety. And so um, I think we've already talked about this. Um, So, so we're getting close to the end and I just wanted to call out a number of programs that people can check out that are, that are engaged in two-eyed seeing. There's Anishinaabe Health Center in Toronto. This is their website. Um, and they provide both traditional and conventional approaches. There's um, a fabulous success story that it took years, but there's now um, a sacred fire and an Anipi lodge on the grounds of the Center for Addictions and Mental Health in Toronto. Here's a, here's a two-eyed seeing approach from Manitoba. It's um, um and it's providing traditional and conventional healthcare. This is their Thunderbird house in downtown Winnipeg. And the center can be removed to permit a sacred fire. Offices are in a circle around the central meeting room. Here's um, Anishinaabe Mushkiki 
in Thunder Bay, Ontario, which is um, providing conventional and traditional care. And they talk about um, delivering holistic programs in a culturally appropriate manner using the four sacred medicines, which are sweet grass. Um, the three parts of the braid are mind, body, and spirit. And sweet grass provides kindness and healing, which comes from the North. There is tobacco, which promotes strength and courage and flows from the East. Cedar, which promotes honesty and flows from the South. And sage, which is used to get rid of negative feelings. So let's wrap it up, it's quarter up. I'm going to, it's 11 up. And so, um, so this is two I'd seen and it's being um, both traditional, but also able to take the best from conventional medicine. And so, um, finally, to wrap up, you know, we would say that Indigenous people have been concerned with mental health for thousands of years. And today's dominant paradigm dismisses Indigenous wisdom. And two-eyed seeing allows us to take what works from multiple perspectives. So it allows us to integrate indigenous knowledge and other knowledge systems while honoring cultures, individuals, and creating better mental health systems. So I invite you to reach out to me um, at any time. And I think we're ready um, to stop the recording. And I thank you for listening.